Welcome to The Lab Life Show, a candid insight into the life of an undergraduate researcher. I'm your host, Richard Song. I'm an aspiring research scientist, an undergraduate student at Vanderbilt University, studying computer science, applied math, and neuroscience. In this series, I invite you along my weekly research journey and share lessons I've learned in the lab. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 1, Getting Started with Research. In this episode, I discuss why you should participate in research as an undergraduate, how to contact professors for research positions, and finding a lab that best suits you. Plus, I introduce you to my brand new summer research journey as a summer scholar in the Boys Town National Research Hospital Institute for Human Neuroscience. So without further ado, let's discuss. So first, I'm going to talk about finding a research position in a university. There are many reasons for why undergraduates would want to pursue research. For example, you may be a pre-medical student and doing research is one of the boxes that you have to check for medical school. You may also be interested in pursuing research as a career full-time after graduation and want to go into grad school, in which research is basically a requirement. Or you're just curious and want to work with a professor who's top of their field and add a fantastic and fascinating research project into your resume. All in all, there are many different reasons for why an undergraduate would want to pursue research, and thus, at many institutions, it is very competitive to actually get a research position in the first place. Getting a research position also depends on your school. Many schools are really, really big with a lot of undergraduate students, and thus more students are gunning for a limited number of spots. Such universities are typically public and have around 30 to 40,000 students undergraduate population. On the other hand, some universities are private and have around an undergraduate population of 7,000 students, and thus there are fewer students gunning for these research positions, which makes them less competitive. Another factor that's also important is the research level of your university. Some schools are R1 and thus produce more research than other schools such as R2 schools, which produce less research, and thus it's easier to find research at an R1 university than it would be at an R2 university. Now I'm going to present three different techniques that you can use to find research. The first technique to finding a research position is cold emailing, which is basically emailing a professor without any previous contact with them and asking for a research position. This method is probably not the most effective method, but it is the most commonly employed method and is the method that most of my friends and I have used to get research as an undergraduate. When cold emailing, you want to remember the three C's, credentials, clarity, and closure. First, credentials. Why are you qualified for this research position? You want to state what classes you have taken, what you are studying, any past research experience, and also, at the end, include your resume so that the professor can see your past experience in this field. Second, and probably most important, is clarity. In other words, why you should get this research position. You want to tie your past research experiences with the professor's interests and clearly state to the professor why you are best suited to do their research, why their research aligns with your interests, and why you would best be able to contribute to their lab because of your prior experiences. And the third step, which is the step that most people forget, is closure. Closure, when cold emailing a professor, is not necessarily asking them for their research position off the bat. Rather, it's setting up a Zoom meeting or an in-person meeting to get to learn more about their research. Once you've had a full-on conversation with the professor and asked questions about the research and how you would suit in with their lab, it makes it much easier for the professor to offer you that research position rather than you cold emailing and directly asking for that position without even talking to them in the first place. 
So next time you cold email a professor for a research position, make sure you remember the three C's. Credentials, why you're qualified for the position. Clarity, why your past experiences meshes with the professor's experiences. And closure, set up that Zoom meeting, set up that in-person meeting and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the professor. And at the end, ask them how you can be involved in their lab. So that's the first technique, cold emailing. Let's move to the second technique, which is probably the most effective technique, networking. Now this has many different facets. First, if you know someone in the lab, try to have them be your reference. This is really similar to how people apply to internships or jobs. For example, when you're applying to an internship, you can go on LinkedIn, see, for example, who works at that company, network with that person, and see at the end if they can provide you a reference. This is how a lot of people get internships through references. A similar method can apply to applying for research. If you know somebody in that lab, whether that's an undergraduate who's your friend or a graduate student, try to set up a conversation with them. And then at the end, if you believe that their research project seems really interesting to you, have them become your reference when you email the professor. The professor is much more likely to respond to you and to give you that research position if somebody that they already know in the lab states that you are qualified. This also applies to cold emailing as well. The professor is much more likely to open and respond to that cold email if they know that's also on behalf of somebody else that they already know in the first place. So that's the first part of networking. The second part of networking has to do with research matches or conferences. Personally, I actually got an offer to one of the research labs in my school through a research conference or a research match. These research matches and conferences are basically when professors who need undergraduates to work in their lab will host a conference or like a poster presentation and they'll talk about their research. And at the end, the students will hand them their resume so that the professor can kind of vet through who's qualified and who's not. These research conferences are a great way to get to know professors. And if you find their research to be really interesting, I highly recommend that you set up a meeting with them afterwards once you've given them your resume. Basically state, hey, I attended this research conference. Um, I gave you my resume and you presented me your work. I'm really interested in your research. Would you like to have a more in-depth conversation to potentially talk about projects in your lab? Something along the lines of that. So that's networking. The third way that undergraduates find research is through their classes. And this is probably the most obvious one. If there's a professor that you really enjoy and you find their research to be really fascinating, go up to them after class in person and ask potentially if there are research opportunities in their lab. Now, a caveat to this, you obviously want to be performing relatively well in their class and you want to be pretty active in the class conversations. If you're just someone who sits in the back, doesn't make really good grades and doesn't participate in the, in the conversation of the class, then the professor is not really going to know you. It's not going to necessarily know your credentials and they're less likely to offer you that position. Whereas if you are active in the class, you make good grades, the professor is much more likely to know you in the first place, and they're going to be more willing to offer you that research position. So those are the three ways that students often find research at the undergraduate level. Now I'm going to present to you three overarching tips that you can use to more successfully get this research position. First, and probably most importantly, display genuine interests. What does this mean? Professors are professional researchers. They've devoted their entire life to understanding a particular topic, to researching that topic and publishing papers, going to conferences, etc. As a result, they're more likely than not very, very passionate about what they research. If you can display genuine interest in their research passion, 
ask good questions and have a good conversation about them on that research topic, they're much more likely to remember you and give you that research position. So how do you do this? When you set up that conversation with the professor one-on-one, -on -one, as we've talked about earlier, remember the closure aspect, ask them good questions, do your research on their topic, be well-informed on their research. And afterwards, coming into that one-on-one -on -one conversation, you can ask genuine questions and the professor is much more likely to remember you and much more likely to say yes to you uh, at getting a research position in their lab. So first, display genuine interest. Second, start early and be persistent. A lot of the students that I know that were really successful in their research started early. They asked in their freshman year, and even if the professor didn't get back to them, they consistently asked, right? So if you cold email a professor and they don't respond in maybe two weeks, cold email again with the follow-up. And if that doesn't work, then maybe move on. But also start early. You don't want to start too late because you never know how quickly a professor will get back to you. If you start early, for example, um, in your freshman year, maybe your second semester, or some people even their first semester, if you start early, you give yourself plenty of buffer time so that if a professor doesn't respond to you, or if they don't give you a research position, you can move on to the next one. And that allows you to get a research position maybe by the end of your freshman summer. And third, take advantage of your school's resources. This is something that is so important and so underrated, and it's something that I didn't really realize until the second semester of my freshman year. But your school will probably have resources such as a career center or career coaches that can help you perfect your resume, perfect your LinkedIn, perfect those cold emails, can coach you to what you say when you, when you meet up with the professor one-on-one -on -one to discuss their research. Go to these career centers, go to these career coaches and have them help you because they have helped so many people in the past and have gotten them success as well. So finding research again, just to overview, the three methods, cold emailing, remember the three C's, credentials, clarity, and closure. Networking, try to get someone in the lab to be your reference or go to research matches and conferences and follow up with the professor after you've handed them your resume at these conferences. And third, classes. If there's a class they really like, go to the professor after the class and set up maybe a meeting with them to discuss their research. Make sure that you're participating actively in the class and that the professor knows you and that you're doing well in the class. And the overarching tips, one, display genuine interest. Do your research on the professor's research because that is their passion and ask them genuine questions that displays that you understand their research. Two, be early and be persistent. A lot of times professors will not get back to you. And if that's the case, try asking them again with a follow-up. And if they don't get back to you, then move on. But start early because you don't know how long it will take for a professor to finally give you that position. And third, take advantage of your school's resources. The Career Center is so important, so valuable, and they will offer you incredible tips for you to succeed as an undergraduate researcher. So that was part one of the Lab Life podcast. Part two will consist of my weekly research updates. For context, I'm currently a research assistant at the Boystown National Research Hospital Institute for Human Neuroscience based in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm part of a research program that's 10 weeks long that will allow me to complete a full research project and end with a poster presentation. In this research program, I'm currently studying cognitive and systems neuroscience using a technique called magnetoencephalography, also known as MEG. 
Using MEG, I will be studying the neurological basis for aging, neurodegenerative diseases, or substance abuse. For this past week, I've been part of the MEG bootcamp and have been practicing how to do pre-processing and data analysis using a practice data set. So for, for now, this episode, I'm basically just going to briefly recap on how MEG works and how and what I've learned throughout this bootcamp. So MEG is a non-invasive neuroimaging technique. And basically the way it works is as follows. The brain, when it processes information, will release these things called action potentials, which is essentially releasing a neurotransmitter, which is a chemical that the brain uses to communicate with each other. The, it will release neurotransmitters through neurons, which are essentially the cells of the brain. When it does this, it causes an electric current that's released throughout the communication of neurons. As you may know from basic physics, electric current will release a magnetic field in the direction of the right hand rule. So if you're listening to this right now, if you take your right hand and point your thumb in one direction and curl the rest of your fingers the direction that your thumb is pointing to is the electric current, and the direction in which your fingers curl is the direction of the magnetic field. So to generalize in the brain, when these neurons communicate with each other and release action potentials, when enough neurons do this, it releases something called a postsynaptic potential, which generates an electric current. This electric current will create a magnetic field. MEG has many, many sensors, around 300 sensors, that will help detect these magnetic fields that are being generated around the brain. These sensors are placed around the brain. Now, the magnetic field of your brain is absolutely tiny. It's on the order magnitude of femtotesla, which is one quadrillionth of the magnetic field of the Earth. I'll repeat that. The magnetic field generated by these neurons is in the magnitude of femtotesla one quadrillionth the magnetic field of the Earth. They are absolutely tiny. Basically, anything that's around us generates a magnetic field, right? Our heartbeat generates a magnetic field. Our blinks generate a magnetic field. Cars outside, computers, our phones, all those generate a magnetic field that can actually be greater than the magnetic field of our brains, of our neurons. And therefore, it is so, so important that we block out as many magnetic field uh, emitters as possible, which is why an MEG scanner is placed in a magnetically insulated room, a specially built magnetically insulated room that will block out as much basically magnetic field sources from the external world as possible. These sensors that the magnetic uh, that the MEGs use are incredibly sensitive and any small disturbance may mess them up, which is why it is vital that when you get an MEG scan, you actually remove all metal from your body and place it outside because any metal from your body may cause wild fluctuations and disruptions in these sensors, which can actually break them. And it's important because these sensors are really expensive. An entire MEG machine is around $2 million and the room itself is also $2 million. So a total of $4 million. What makes the Boystown National Research Hospital really special is that it's the only institution in the US that has two MEG scanners. And for context, there are only around 40 MEG scanners total in the US. So MEG is a pretty big deal. Um, one of the positives of MEG is that it has high temporal resolution. What does this mean? This means that it can detect when neurons are firing on the order of milliseconds. Right after a neuron fires, the MEG scanner will pick it up. 
Now, one of the downsides of MEG is the spatial resolution. This means that it's not necessarily able to locate where exactly on the brain the neural activity is occurring. Now, a caveat to this, MEG has good spatial resolution when it comes to the surface level of the brain or the cortical level of the brain, which means that if there's neural activity firing on the gyri or sulci of the brain that are on the very outside, then it'll be able to detect it pretty accurately. However, if there's neural activity on the subcortical levels, meaning all the areas underneath the surface of the brain, such as the hippocampus, the amygdala, it's not necessarily able to detect those individual points as well. However, there are some pre-processing techniques that MEG can use to detect those areas a lot better. MEG is a little bit controversial in the status quo because a lot of people think that the cheaper option, EEG, is better. EEG stands for electroencephalography and basically it picks up the electrical currents that are firing from the different regions of the brain. However, EEG doesn't have very spatial, very good spatial resolution in both cortical and subcortical levels. Think of it this way, right? Our brain is made up mostly of water. There is a reason why when it's thundering outside, we are forced to get out of a pool because if a lightning strikes the pool, then that electric electricity will propagate throughout the pool. And even if you're standing in like one end of the pool and the electricity strikes the other end, you might still be electrocuted. Using that analogy, we can understand kind of why uh, EEG doesn't necessarily have the best spatial resolution, even on cortical levels. Because when one area of the brain fires an electrical current and the brain is mostly made out of water, that electrical current propagates throughout the regions of the brain. And thus, it's pretty difficult to localize where exactly a neural activity is occurring based on an EEG reading. In fact, the spatial resolution for an EEG can range up to 5 centimeters, which is not very good. Consider an important application of EEG, which is an apneurotic seizure detection. A neurosurgeon, for example, might see a 5 centimeter region around where an epileptic seizure wave may occur. That's not very useful information because in that 5 centimeters, maybe thousands, if not millions, of neurons which are not having these seizures. And therefore, one tiny inaccuracy in the surgical removal of the epileptic seizure can result in a plethora of lost brain function. That's why MEG which is a lot more accurate when it comes to spatial resolution on the cortical surface, is slowly gaining more and more popularity. So to recap, each MEG sensor will pick up a magnetic field that's generated from an electric current that's caused with postsynaptic potentials from neurons firing. Each sensor will pick up something called a time series. So essentially, over time, it picks up the magnetic field and that location. And this time series will look a bit like an oscillation. And these oscillations are representative of brain waves. There are different types of brain waves that fire at different frequencies. For example, the gamma brain wave fires at a really fast frequency, whereas the delta brain wave fires at the lowest frequency. Frequency meaning the number of waves per second. Brain waves and their frequencies are really important to many different functions. One particular example is sleep. In our deep sleep, for example, we see mostly delta waves, or these slow waves, while in our lighter stages of sleep, or REM sleep, we see faster brain waves, such as the beta waves and the alpha waves. Different brain waves can reveal different functions that are occurring in different areas of the brain. For example, when you tap your finger 
or when uh, you receive a small electrical shock to your wrist, you can actually see certain brain waves becoming more active or less active. And that can allow us to determine which areas of the brain are responsible for which functions and how they do so. We can arrive at these conclusions with a powerful technique known as Fourier analysis. Essentially what Fourier analysis does is it transforms a time series of different amplitudes of the magnetic fields and the oscillations over time to something known as a time frequency spectrogram, which tells us how different amplitudes of brain waves at different frequencies change over time. And as a result, when we induce a specific stimulus to the brain, we can use our time frequency spectrogram to see which brain waves are becoming more or less active across certain points of time. Using these time frequency spectrograms can reveal a lot about the location in which certain neural activity is occurring, as well as the specific way that the neural activity functions via these oscillations. So that's mostly it about MEG and data analysis and pre-processing for this week. Next week, I'll finally obtain my research project, and I'll talk to you guys about what my research project entails and what directions I can take in the applications that it has. Thank you for listening to the Lab Life Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, or whichever platform you are tuning in from. So long for now, and I'll see you next week.